Welcome to TES Podagogy. For this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Simon Edwards, Senior Lecturer in Youth Studies at the University of Portsmouth and an expert in the sport of children excluded from school. This conversation comes at a time when off-rolling, isolation booths and high exclusion rates are in the news and the perception is growing that some teach- children may be unteachable. We will be discussing all of this and more. Simon, welcome to the podcast. Hiya. Should we start with this notion of an unteachable child? Uh, you know, in, in schools, if we're excluding a child, mm. we're, we're deeming them unteachable, essentially, yeah. in that context. Yeah. Do you think such a thing as an unteachable child exists? No, nonsense. There's no such thing as an unteachable child in, in what I've experienced anyway in my life. Mm. Um, I think there's a series of coinciding events that sometimes occur within the classroom um, that enable that child... That, that lead to that child not being able to engage with the classroom learning or whatever it might be. And we talk about engagement in lots of different ways. But um, for, for example, you know, if you're trying to teach algebra to a young person, like I was with a young girl one time, um, whose mum had had a stroke when this girl was nine. This girl came to me when she was 14. Um, this girl was constantly worried about her mum uh, being ill and whether or not there's a problem at home. So when she was at home, she wanted to be at school to learn and be with her friends there as well and when she was at, hu- at school she wanted to be at home mm. so she was constantly worried so she'd have her mobile phone on and she wanted to constantly check her phone to see if she got a phone call from her mum or whatever to see if she's alright of course when school became academy there was no phones mm. they used any phones so we had to put them in the cupboard and then lock them in there and of course that then became quite problematic if the phone went off or it had been longer than an hour to do it now, there's ways around that, of course, but it's an example that actually some of those other events coincide within the classroom quite often, and sometimes they get to a point where actually the young person just cannot focus on the lesson that's going on. And so you're, you're saying that, uh, essentially that a child can be unteachable in a moment or, or, or even an extended moment, but in general a child is not unteachable? Uh, generally, a child, I never come across a child who is unteachable in terms of curriculum content mm. or who is unwilling to listen to, to your, your, your views if you respect them. And, uh, um, so, yeah, there are moments when actually you've just got to be sensible about it and say, let's try something else. Yeah. And do you think that... Different, school, ch- different schools deem different children unteachable. And by that I mean if uh, a bar of inclusion in terms of behaviour mm. is quite high mm. because the, the experience mm. of the teachers in that school with disruptive behaviour at this level is not, is not high, yeah. that child is deemed unteachable. Where that child in a school where disruptive behaviour was more commonly dealt with mm. doesn't mean it's more commonly not dealt with. But mm. if, if teachers are used to dealing with that sort of mm. behaviour, that child may be more teachable, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, in, in that sense, you're saying that teachability is based on the behaviour policy. Mm. Yeah. Um, it coincides with it. Um, well, yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I mean, um, we, we know that some behaviour policies are, are designed in order to exclude some young people because mm. you know that some young people are not going to be able to to um, to comply with those. Um, um, largely because they haven't got any HCP, so therefore you don't therefore have to listen to you know, take into account their behaviours or whatever. Yeah. It just becomes inappropriate behaviour or whatever. But I think also, I think also, if you like, you know, one school I've been in recently, um, Senko said to me, well, actually, um, and the kids said to me when I interviewed about the non-attendance for some research, they said to me, well, we get a behaviour point for not having a pencil in the morning. We get a behaviour point for having the wrong colour shoes on. We get a behaviour point for not having the right button done up and the top button done up or a tie on or whatever and they said once you get three behavior points you get half day exclusion okay and it's like well actually to you know how can we define not having a pencil as a behavior and there's kind of these actions that are kind of being turned into moral actions and 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 then kind of laid on the student as a way of kind of making them comply and, and making them more efficiently learn somehow mm. but it's based on fear it's about dra- driving young people um you know um, so you're it, sort of arguing that not bringing your pencil or pen or wearing mm. different shoes is not a behaviour of willful non-compliance. It, it may be a circumstantial, mm. environmental or contextual yeah. uh, issue that's been deemed a behaviour. Yeah, you've got a youngster whose who's mum's got three part-time jobs because uh, she's by herself trying to bring the young person up with another kitty or something. Then this young person is to, you know, has to get, out, get himself up in, up in the morning probably gets himself breakfast but he's got himself to school in the first place mm. actually 
you know, the last thing he's going to think of is his pencil. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because he's also, he's thinking about what he's going to have for dinner at night because his mum might be working again mm. or whatever, or his dad or whatever, but it's largely young people with single parents with a mum at home that I've worked with. And do you find that the, the, the children you work, I know you work extensively, you know, you've run units, you know, alternative provision units, now you do a lot of research mm. with excluded children. Do you find their pathway is, is one where there's a big cataclysmic event of violence and that they've ended up immediate, immediate exclusion and they've gone down that route? Or is it a, a persistent, uh, more persistent behaviour issue or communication issue that leads down that path? Well, no, I think what you've just done there is you've placed the issue on the young person. Mm -hmm. And that's what schools do. That's what education policy does. Mm -hmm. It places the issue on the, the person as having some deficit. Mm -hmm. It doesn't address the systems that create that. Now I'm not, and it's, it's, it's kind of part of both. Mm -hmm. But actually, if we if we have behaviour policies that don't that don't take into account wider issues, then that's that's that puts some people at disadvantage before before they even start, before they even get into school gates. Yeah. So I've I, I was working with a young person. He was 11. What, how old was he? He was in year 10. Um, this is two years ago. Working in a local school. His dad had done some time in prison for 18 months. His mum was working, again, full-time job on hourly paid or whatever. Mm. Um, his older brother was a pothead, um, so he had kind of gone down that route of drugs and stuff like that. Um, his sister was doing okay, but this young lad was really bright, really smart. He wanted to go to school, and when he turned up, he, he didn't have his shirt done up properly or whatever. And when he turned up, because he was... He was also getting involved with a crowd of kids that were being leery to others as well. Mm. And, um, and that got picked up by the behaviour manager. So as soon as he turned up, he was, he was picked up by the behaviour manager who then told, told me later on that he would pick him up and say, look, this is where you are now on our list of our top 100 kids. Well, like a most wanted. Yeah, 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 almost like that. Okay. And, and <laughs> this is where you are, and actually you need to get to the bottom of the right. most wanted in that sense. Um, and so, in a sense, he's just—he's he, managed to get into school despite kind of family circumstances, situation. Dad was really keen for him to go to school and make it learn, but was getting really frustrated with the behaviour manager because he's picking on his kid. He saw him as just picking on his kid all the time. Yeah. The kid turned up. Okay, he was looking scruffy when he turned up, and he also answered back a few times. And I'm not playing this down. It wasn't a major thing. Mm. Okay, I think he threw a lemon rind he found on the floor, threw it at another kid across the playground I think it was and that's how it was described to me by the behaviour manager I said look what we've got to deal with I said what do you mean it's a lemon rind you know how we need to you know we need to understand other stuff that's going on now it's not to say that the kid who had that thrown at him didn't feel intimidated but it's to say well actually let's start to look at what they sort of you know what's going on with this young person and see if I can find a way forward and do you think looking at that incident from a school perspective do you see that as as a a willful act of trying get it, trying to get a, a child that that they don't want to deal with out of the school, or is that a lack of pastoral care in place to really understand and contextual information that passes from a primary to a secondary so they understand the child? Mm. How is, I mean, where is the school in that dynamic? You know, how much resource, if you like, do they have to to cope with? Well, when that? I was running a unit for a secondary school um, six years ago, and I wrote, yeah. Um, there was, I had young people that were sent to me by the mainstream school um, with one sheet of A4 of information mm. um, about them. And then I was just told by the Senko, well, actually, the rest of it is on file. So I had to trawl through it to try and find it. Mm. Very little information about the young people, um, uh, uh, you know, kind of to work from. So if, if that's what I experienced, uh, trying to get communication from primary into secondary school as well yeah. must be even more difficult. And I think that's part of a systemic problem. I, I, you know, I think we've, we've got primary schools in my local area that have formed one academy chain, and the secondary school is part of a different academy chain. Whereas actually five, 10 years ago, the head teacher told me he was trying to actually form a, a cohesive yeah. line, all becoming one academy. Yeah. So I think this kind of idea about competition, marketization is kind of, is, is, is creating some bigger gaps. Do you think if those, if that contextual information followed was was sort of harvested, if you like, it's a horrible phrase, but harvested by a primary school, so they understood the family, they understood uh, any complexities or, mm. or challenges around SEN, and then that information was passed to the secondary school. Do you think that that 
secondary school, that child you talked of would have a better chance or would you also need a good pastoral team in place? Well, I, I think there is a danger of labelling, mm -hmm. and I think some of the listeners would probably go, yeah, that's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. There is, there is a danger of labelling, and I, I was doing some research in a school um, in the South East last year, and I was asked to look at low attainment by disadvantaged boys, okay. and um, we did 40 interviews with, uh, with, with the, some of the students right from year one and two up to year 11, mm -hmm. year 10, sorry. And we interviewed school leaders, some parents and, and the children. And then we did focus groups and then we did a literature review to put it in a wider context. And, and actually, we, we did encounter this, whereas the primary school was, was really looking at a wraparound service towards the young people. It didn't want to label the kids, so mm -hmm. they didn't actually look for any kind of disadvantage in a sense. And I completely get that. And the feel in that primary school was lovely. Yeah. The kids were really, really happy as well. But the problem with that was that by the time they then got into secondary school, which is much more GCSE focused, mm -hmm. you've got no kind of real data to go on that you can really start to address in the secondary school so that you can then put interventions in place. I see. And consequently, there was a, a difficulty in the transition within that academy chain. So the secondary school is essentially starting. So the primary schools learnt the child mm. as an individual, yeah. built up strategies, built yeah. up interventions, and then the secondary school is getting that child Mm. and it starts from scratch essentially yeah effectively but to some extent yeah because they were focusing much more on the academic attainment yeah. rather than i guess the primary kind of carousel model which i which which i experienced in secondary in in, a, in special provisions actually um the carousel model works really really well because it's high it's very relational mm. and then the secondary school i guess because you've got 1200 young people in there and you've got massive demands to try and you know it's about outcome led model of learning you kind of lose it's very difficult to then put in place some of the support that you actually need and also i've been in three academies where we found um you know up to 25 30 of the support staff have, have been cut left with two staff to try and deal with all the pastoral issues mm. and a sense of responsibility is then placed on the individual student to find a way themselves to find their own is, way out there yeah which is what i found in this particular academy do you, in your, your experience of working in, in Ottoman Parisian and then in part of your research, the, the narrative around exclusion is that these children are excluded either because they're preventing learning from others mm. or because they are a threat to safety of yeah. others in terms yeah. of violence. Yeah. In your experience in Prus and, and in your what we'll talk about later in your project work around children that are actually sometimes too difficult even for a, yeah. a people referral unit to deal with, how prevalent do you think the the safety threat to other students is and how prevalent do you think in reality the the disruption to others learning is um, there's two things there safety and disruption mm -hmm. they're not always the same mm -hmm. um, certainly safety there are some young people that actually have so severe issues and things going on at home that actually they just can't survive and cope within a school classroom mm -hmm. with, with 30 40 kids in them and I completely understand that. You, 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 I've, I've worked in that situation as a teacher, because I'm a qualified teacher mm. and qualified youth worker and now a lecturer as well. So I understand the issues there. Um, and some young people just, you know, we can't, we can't put them on this kind of like conveyor belt, industrialized model of teaching, which is becoming more and more efficient because some people don't fit that model. Yeah in a sense and, and, and aren't compliant enough I guess if that's the best word to use to be able to do that mm -hmm. um, and, and you know I guess like the film some kids are just divergent yeah. <laughs> you know we've got to make it take count for that um, so yes there, there is that and sometimes there is the safety you know like a young person I was working with the other day at home was so wound up with various things because of his own medical conditions and some external things that are going on that he was kind of smashing up the kitchen or whatever there's no danger to us but he was doing that now had he been in a school setting he could well have been a danger to other kids mm -hmm. so yes there is a time to do that what was the other part of the question it was disruption but if we pick on that up on that first that child who is who is a danger to, uh, to the safety of others is exclusion the right answer there because it sounds to me like we're labeling a behavior that's largely out of their control yeah and that if we're adding a label mm. of exclusion, that might not be the most helpful thing. Actually, is where is the provision for a child like that? Mm. Where's the route into specialist help that doesn't involve an exclusion? Well, I think I think it's about collaborative working, mm. and and I think one of the problems in marketisation, it's all about 
me first mm. and, and you know getting those grades and you've got league tables that we kind of saw in the new Labour government being set up actually would have started to be set up way before that mm. but actually we you know we've got a league table competitive schooling environment then then your whole job and the whole mentality the whole thinking within that school environment is going to be we've just got to stop anything that stops us being efficient to get to the top of the ladder because mm. we need students to come to us and there is the tariff that comes with them and, and brings money so exclusion is the mechanism you get to that that the only yeah, available and, mechanism. and exclusion has become a a, a, a a mechanism that enables that to happen mm. um uh, so obviously that's why kind of damien hines and uh, edward timpson looked at a review on exclusions and the processes of exclusion last year mm. so and and, and i i completely understand that uh, but it's part of where we've got to as a process of market schooling and you know it's kind of capitalist ideal in a sense um in a sense kind of students have become units of capital well they are units of capital with their knowledge mm. their knowledge has become something sellable with GCSEs so would you say the the violent student or because of their situation mm. idea in an ideal world they would go to a specialist provision as a transfer and that mm. transfer would be open-ended so if that child began be, got the support they needed that reintegration was possible that 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 sort of more I'm a bit of an idealist. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm very much an idealist, which is probably why I'm in academia yeah. <laughs> doing research. However, I still do practical stuff, and I'm just setting up a cooperative school, which I think is a really good way forward. Mm -hmm. Because what's happening um, with with the cooperative movement, what I understand of it, is that there's this kind of like a mutual support for one another. Every person is valued as an individual, and who and as a um, as a, a kind of an equal standing in that sense. Mm -hmm. Now, equality doesn't mean sameness. Okay. Um, so we understand everyone has different values and uh, different uh, the same value, but kind of different skill sets and abilities. So I think there is an ideal that we can work towards. And I, what we're trying to do in one of the projects that I'm developing is create a community of schooling. So the old kind of comprehensives and community schools, I think there was something about them. Mm. That actually said we're working with the community because because teachers are service providers. We're we're servants. We're civil servants. Mm -hmm. We're not, you know. Um, I, don't, I remember a year, uh, a few years ago, um, one of the um, police commissioners changed the idea of a police force and started to look at a police service. I can't mm -hmm. remember who it was, and I think it was something about actually we need to recognise that actually education is a service. Yet we play on this idea that um, you know the um, um, UN Convention on the Rights of the Child says so every child has a right to an education. Well, we've actually turned it into every child has to have an education. Yeah. If you've got a right, you also have a choice. Now, I also know that every child that I've come across wants education. I did some research um, two months ago and just published it in a report on kids who were non-attending in, in Portsmouth uh, for the city council. Right across the board, every single kid highly values education as a concept. Now, whether the kids being told that or because, you know, it's been indoctrinated into them, I don't know, <clears throat> but they value it as a concept. But actually, some of the learning in school, they did not value. Mm -hmm. So I think we can't assume some things here that actually the kids don't want to learn, that they're deliberately being disruptive. Some are, and some do not want to learn <laughs> at times. They'd rather be out of their mates in the summer than in a classroom, mm -hmm. fair enough. But I think there is something about creating a school environment that actually creates a learning community but is not driven by fear not driven by punishment but is driven by um by by becoming together by you know in that sense uh, it's a really I, lo I love his work Gert Biesta's stuff on uh, transformative education I love Frere's stuff as well um and there's something about education which isn't coming through when I when I see it in the classroom and and in some proofs as well is actually, is that education really transformative? Are kids really getting into it in the sense that they're going, you know what, I can use that. That can help me become what I want to be. You've spoken before as well about the exclusion, the academic exclusion, and, and, it, and this idea mm. that actually we don't really know what these kids can do. Mm. And these kids don't know what they can do mm. because we, we sort of shroud learning it in quite a formal mm. language. Mm. And I know some schools do do sort of shift towards a project-based approach for this reason mm. to try and make it more mm. real-world context mm. um, but there's still I guess a, an academic language around uh, how we learn in schools in this mm. country and, and most Western countries indeed 
is that a necessity to I mean where's the balance between arming kids with mm. the means to talk in that way yeah. and converse in that way so they can go out into the world where there is that language yeah. and how much is exclusionary um, I agree I mean one of the issues that I've had with young people when I was when they were sitting exams was not understanding the questions mm. and I'm part of the OCR forum for sociology okay. and we've looked at this <clears throat> actually how do we rephrase the questions because when I did my doctoral work, when I was in a secondary school, um, there's some stuff where kids got kicked out. Um, I, I draw on Basil Bernstein's work on language codes, mm -hmm. class codes and control. Now, without going into a class-based discussion, um, a lot of the kids that I come across uh, um, kind of use what he would call a, a public language code. Um, which 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 isn't so formal as what you get when you're trying to answer questions on a GCSE paper. Mm. So in a sense, there's something about training people to become bilingual, to understand that language code, which is what I ended up doing. Um, I kind of did it in my doctorate. But there's also something about, actually, um, th there's something also about the way we measure intelligence is so narrow. Mm. It's become a cognitive function rather than any other sorts of intelligence. Because mm -hmm. I'm aware that there's um, actually one of the schools in Portsmouth, there's a new school um, that is just the first school in the country, I think, that is, is now applying STEAM subjects rather than just STEM subjects. Okay, yeah. They're introducing the arts um, to help, kind of a sense, measure intelligence. And that's quite big in beer as well at the moment mm -hmm. as well. So I think, yes, we do. We, we exclude people by the... That's what I'm trying to say. It's not just... You know, we place the problem and the deficit on the person, but we don't look at our own systems and our own cultural backgrounds. So um, we, we, ex we exclude a lot of people just by the language you use in the classroom and also by the content of the curriculum. Because yeah. quite often that c curriculum is not appropriate. It's an interesting angle, isn't it, on the... On you know, there's there's so much funding and investment that goes into how we how we close the attainment gap between mm. uh, disadvantaged mm. children and their peers. And actually, what you're saying is, how much do we? How much of the the sort of focus is on bridging what is a gap that is between a language gap, essentially? Mm. But you've also spoken in the past about the fact that there's an assumption around disadvantage and um, yeah, family aspiration, aspiration and yeah. family input yeah. and how the, the, team, the term almost becomes meaningless. Yeah, I, I just something that really annoys me, and I guess I'm kind of getting into subjective emotions here. But um, no, I mean, ah, I, I had a... Um, I worked with a, um, a number of really forward-thinking and quite self-effacing head teachers. Mm. Uh, one at the moment uh, did some research and he said, actually, the research you come up with is quite challenging. Can you help me address it in our school with the young people? How cool is that? Mm. That's amazing. So I really respect this person. But, but I've also had, I've also had other, a couple of other head teachers saying, actually, you know, particularly in um, low-income areas, there's an area, um, there's some areas around Portsmouth that kind of have really quite low-income areas, mm. and high industrial um, housing estate areas, high deprivation same as around the Brighton area where I live and, and 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 I've heard it a number of times it's like oh we need to and you know, kids need to have grit and determination and they need to we need to raise their aspirations and I'm like what are you on what are you talking about loads of the young people that I, I, I work with and talk with want to be like their dad who's a builder mm. or or their mum who's a hairdresser or her mum who's you know um, doing admin or whatever mm. They've got aspiration. What you're saying is you want to raise their aspiration and you're assuming they've got lower aspirations than kids that are middle class mm. at, or, or, or come from more affluent background. But if you've got a child whose mum and dad are a doctor and a solicitor or a doctor and a teacher or whatever, then actually they might not have particularly high aspiration because they're just going to kind of walk into that kind of cultural background anyway. They have all the skills to kind of go into that or a lot of the skills to start them. So... They might actually have lower aspirations in terms of where their starting line is than a young person. I see what you're saying. You're, yeah. so, so I'm saying, than a yeah. young person. So actually, don't tell me a kid hasn't got high aspirations. Actually, I've done some research in a school last year. Um, it was in a, in, in, in a school where I was looking at attainment. And the aspirations of the kids are through the roof, mm. even right through to year 10. And these are kids that come from, an, you know, from quite a deprived area where there was um, uh, someone was stabbed and killed on some, one of the doorsteps mm. um, the, that, that year. 
And, and most, okay, when you get to year one and two, a lot of the kids are like, oh, I want to be a footballer because they live around a football stadium area. Yeah. And I want to be, I want to play for Real Madrid. By the time you get to year 10, it's like, yeah, I want to be a footballer, but I want to do it this way. I work for the local club or whatever. Yeah. Or I want to be a manager. And it's much more realistic. But don't tell me. That kid, and if kids haven't got high aspirations, it's because they've lost motivation. Mm. That's my view. And I think the, the fascinating Bit of, another fascinating bit about the work you do, and we should probably talk about the work you do actually first, is, is you work with parents, but do you want to first explain the, the project you've been running for yeah. the children who are pretty much at the end of the line of education? Yeah. Um, well, this one um, started up when I was working in a school um, two, uh, 18 months ago, and um, I said I'd do some voluntary work in a school, because as an academic, I want to make sure that I'm still doing the job that I'm talking about in academia mm. and I'm still actually able to do it to the highest level I can. So I went in I did some voluntary work before we did a little bit of research and they said oh do you want to work with our kids? I said yeah I'll come in half a day a week and work. Give me the kids that you really think could do with a mentor and get alongside. So I, I started chatting with them and the kids used to chat with me. After six weeks the Senko said to me A, well I you know, I thought it was bullshit and you wouldn't be able to do this, but actually you can, yeah. and actually you're doing all right at it. And then she said, most most teachers kind of come in and they can't handle it, and then they kind of walk away because they think the kids are too rude or whatever. I said, no, kids are lovely. They just say it as it is. And she said, well, actually, um, can you set up an inclusion unit for us? I said, no, I'm 51 now. I've been doing this 32 years. Yeah. You know, literally from youth work on housing estates and through to this now. I said, I can't do that. So I've got 110 former students and parents on a Facebook account I just set up. Um, so I sent out a message and I said, this is what I've been asked to do, what do you think? And about 30 messages come back and said, train us. Because we know how you work. It's helped us. Let us then help others. So I thought, oh, I never thought of that. These are children <laughs> who'd been excluded at school yeah, and yeah, now yeah. we're adults. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 they're adults, yeah, 20. Mm. Yeah, a lot of them are kind of in their 30s now. And the parents are on there as well. So it, it, it boiled down. We applied to, um, uh, who's it, Sussex, Brighton, through Brighton University, Sussex Learning, uh, no, Sussex Learning Network. It was part of the widening participation agenda. Um, community Outreach Project. And we ended up applying for and getting £8,500. Um, so we, I, uh, me and a chap called Yusuf Bakali, um, he's got a PhD in, in street life, actually, and he works at uh, Burnham City University now. Um, we trained two parents and three of my former excluded students, so two of them were the parents of the two kids. We trained them in qualitative research methods, took them into university to give them that experience because they ain't got any university experience. Um, trained them up um, in qualitative research methods and uh, in the ethics of that and in safeguarding, etc., etc. Um, and then we trained them to, um, and then we worked with West Sussex Parent Carer Forum. Uh, who've got about 100 students who have been excluded from school who've got SEND and EHCPs, mm. um, education healthcare plans. Um, and she put out an advert. And we have five families come forward. Now, bear in mind, these people didn't know us. Yeah. So, and also, they've been through a whole series of things with professionals. So what they did is they, they, we, we, we then did focus groups with these five families, which is six kids and about eight parents. Mm. And we started to, just using pictures of schools and pictures of the good life, pictures of the word education, write down your thoughts about it. And we, we started to interview them about their thoughts and their feelings and experience, their lived experiences. Mm. And because my team had, had lived experience of it, they knew the sort of, they could interpret what these people were saying and they knew how to elicit the questions. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, they were employed by what? Portsmouth University's research assistant, so it was really cool. Yeah, yeah. So they got a, you know, got a really good job there. Um, and then we, then we had a session around my, it was all done, uh, we met around my house actually, it was all very informal, um, with the team after, after the transcripts had been typed up by the team. Each had, there's five people in the team, each person had a transcript, and we, we looked at sensitizing methods, Bloomer sensitizing methods, and we'd asked them to draw on their own lived experience of exclusion, and what it felt like as a parent and a young person, to start to read into what's going on in the responses we got in the research. And um, we also read some stuff on bell hooks about reflective thinking, which is absolutely brilliant and helped them understand that. And what they did is they, they just wrote down words that came to mind. 
as they went through their transcripts. And then they put them on post-it notes. There's a picture in an article we're just publishing. Um, I've got my coffee table full of post-it notes. Yeah. So I said, right, now what we want to do is, I haven't got a clue what this is all saying, because it actually has now gone beyond what I can actually do. Yeah. Um, and I said, what I want you to do is try and put them into themes. So they did, it's like grounded theory. So they did, they put them all into themes, and we came about five different themes. It's like, school blames us, kid wants to learn, I think my kid's really smart, different ways of doing it, no one understands, that sort of stuff. Mm. And I said, well, what do you reckon? Where do we go with this? And we, we stopped to have a barbecue. <laughs> okay, yeah. And then <laughs> to chat. And then we went back again. And then Vicky, one of my team, who had been excluded, um, and she had some very, very serious mental health issues when she was with me. And she managed to get, ooh, five GCSEs. Mm-hmm. So that was good. And her mum was there as well. And Vicky goes, it looks to me like they're in a spiral. Mm. Doesn't matter which way you put these. It's a mess. Yeah. I said, all oh, right, okay, what do you mean? She said, well, look, you can move these little clusters around. I think it's spiral. I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, when I was excluded, I was in a spiral in my mind because everyone, every professional that came in, although they really wanted to help us, they were actually spiraling me even more and more. Okay, yeah. And then the only person I could trust was my mum, and she joined in that spiral. So we were on a trajectory that wasn't planned, but we were going all over the place. Yeah, yeah. And nothing anyone could do could help. And everyone who tried to help was making it worse. Yeah. I said, well, okay, that's fine. Anyone else, what do you think? And we found, actually, that word came up a number of times in the, um, in the um, transcripts. Yeah. 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 I'm like, oh, I hadn't seen that. And that's their lived experiences that are coming through that helped to sensitize them to the data. So then we said, okay, let's have another break. So we had some more barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> and then we come back, and then Yusuf goes... Well, okay, we've got spiral. Where do we go? What do we do with it? He says, it's a bit like a tornado. <coughs> so Vicky goes, yeah, but what you did, Simon, was created a shelter. I said, what do you mean? Well, you created a safe space. I said, well, what, what did I do then? She said, well, when you were working with us, you used to come around our house and you used to just talk about us mm. <coughs> and ask us what we wanted to do in life and actually what we thought was important in life. And she said, that's what you did. You didn't just do what you did with my mum. And actually, so I think what we need to do is create a, self, a shelter. Mm. So I said, okay, fine, how do we do that? So we devised an intervention based on that that became our now mentoring on intervention, where in pairs we would go around and work with the young person and the parent um, for two hours a week and actually just talk to them about what they like, what they don't like. We'd, we, we had ethical clearance from the university to work with the young person and the parent separately if we needed to. Um, that's what we've got now. Um, but always with two mentors, um, one one perhaps younger one to work with the young person and one older one to understand the parents. So actually when the parent and the young person start to argue, which they quite often did, they, they could draw on their own experiences, my mentors, and, and help the issue out. Mm. And that worked really, really well. Well, within all five of the young people, after between six and 12 sessions, ended up either going back into school and their behaviour improved at the AP they were at because these kids were all getting kicked out of the alternative provisions yeah, so, so they were going nowhere really the Some, line, one yeah. kid hadn't been to school for eight years yeah. because he couldn't get, get into school he had PDA and he kept kicking off keep being violent kept hitting his mum all the rest of it cause he couldn't get it out of the system you know another girl the mum used to drag the daughter from the bedroom in the morning because she was under such pressure to, to get, her, get her into school because she had a parenting order yeah drag her out of bed by the hair, cross the floor, throw her in the bathroom, force her to get into a shower, and then take her to school. That's what, and that's, I've heard that a number of times. And that's because external pressures. And all these children ended up going back into education? All five. All five. We're, now guess, on our, we're just taking referrals from alternative provision now. And I think the interesting thing about that and what you've spoken to in the past is that the parent is as much part of the intervention as the child. Yes. And you've spoken about how when a, when a child is heading on a... On a pathway to exclusion maybe in mm. a spiral as they mm. describe it the parent becomes in the school's mind part of the problem not yeah. part of the solution well that's what happens i mean we've you know david um you know when david cameron's speeches in 216 kind of focuses on dealing with parenting mm. i mean in west sussex if you've got you know if you want an hcp what i was told by a lot of the parents and and my team is that actually you've got to go through triple parenting before you triple p before you actually get considered for an hcp in other words, you've got to prove you're a good parent first. Okay. And that becomes really problematic. Like, you know, one of the parents we've got has 
um, we're working alongside, um, um, you know, it goes against the trend. The parents we're working with go against the trends. You kind of assume that a lot of the parents have no education themselves, they actually got no idea how to help their kids, they don't know what to do. No, that's not true. Mm. We've got some quite wealthy parents that are really struggling. We've just been asked to take on a young person whose parents are very wealthy, a swimming pool and a garden, all that sort of stuff, um, and he's just getting co-opted into gangs. So there's some issues there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's county lines issue there. But um, well, one of the parents has got a PhD in microbiology, mm. but she had a brain tumour. They were living in Scotland five, six years, no, was it 10 years ago? So she had to move down to sell the house. So she moved down here um, to be near her parents so they could help out. Um, her husband's got cerebral palsy. The youngest son's got something like Crohn's disease. The middle son's got ADHD and autism, and the oldest son's got PDA. Mm. They live on a housing estate, but because they live on a housing estate, and the mum won't tell the teachers and the school and, and the social workers that she's got a PhD, they assume she's a bad parent who can't think straight. Mm. That's her perception of it. That might not, I've not spoken to those people. So what I'm what I'm saying is that actually, you know. When you look at the narrative of the child, you cannot disassociate it from wider cultural contexts. Yeah. And when you look at a child's behaviour in the classroom, you can't disassociate it from family background. But also, you can't assume that the parents are to blame. That yeah. actually, if a dad's just lost his job and a mum's struggling with a part-time or full-time job to kind of be the breadwinner or something like that, or vice versa, depending on how it works, that causes relationship issues which impact on the kid when they go in the classroom. You cannot, as I've been told when I was a teacher, the kids and teachers have to leave their baggage at the door. That's bullshit, it doesn't happen. Mm. Sorry, cannot do that. You cannot just say to a kid, this is your workplace, you come in here, this is your work uniform. Well, they're children, they're not adults going to work. Mm. So I think um, also um, the assumption we took was that actually a young person's aspirations and the values they, that, we, that they have and where they want to go is located within a family set narrative yeah. that will be influenced by parents. Um, and actually, I've never come across a parent yet who didn't want the best for their child. And I've done over a thousand home visits in the last 10 years as well. It's interesting what you said before as well. It's not Your job is not about educating that parent to be using, uh, quote marks here, a better parent. Mm. It, it, it's, it's listening to that parent and making yeah. an ally of that parent. I well, yeah, absolutely. But it's also to say to the parent, I'm not here to help, I'm not asking you to help me do my job. Yeah. And I'm not here to help you or tell you how to do your job. What I used to say to parents when I was working with them in alternative provision, when I used to say, to, and when I was in a special school, I used to say to the parents, I'm not asking you to help me do my job. I'm here to serve you and help you and your child get where you want to go in life, mm. assuming they don't want to you know, become a bank robber or something. <laughs> you know what I mean? And if they do, just subtly steer them? Well, well, one or two have wanted yeah. to. Okay. You know, because that's, you know, I had a young person who wanted to be a drug dealer. Why? Because both his parents are locked up for 10 years being a drug dealer. You know, that's the only life he could see. So okay. actually, you know, and we've got kids coming in, you know, uh, you know we've got... Um, kids getting involved in county lines you know one kid we were working with was trying to re re recommission a revolver that he'd that his dad had given him it was un it was uh, it was not commissioned it was decommissioned because it was legalized and licensed they were trying to put ball bearings in it and he stolen all the knives out kitchen knives out of the kitchen or whatever for his house and he told his mum his mum was worried and she said you know what's going on here so si? i said well um because um um he he was getting involved with county lines and he was worried that they were going to rape or kill his mum or whatever. So he couldn't tell her that. But also, actually, when he was hanging around the streets with some 20-year-olds, that was much more fun, much more feeling, appealing than going to school. Mm. So actually, it was a life he was aspiring to. So actually, what, you know, what we need to do is start to say, actually, can we, can we, are we at a point where we can work and help them find an alternative life? But telling them to go back to school and do algebra really doesn't cut it when actually you can be out of your mates stealing motorbikes. Yeah. <laughs> Did I, um, so in that sense, finding something that kids are interested in is, is open, uh, pushing the door slightly ajar to get them. Yeah. It's an introduction. You're not saying they're going to do that for life, but actually no. at least get them into the building. Well, I think for me, what I've done with one youngster is we had an old mini moto, took it into the garden, stripped the engine apart, and it was the, it was the vehicle that enabled us to have a conversation. Yeah. And as I started talk with him I explained to how 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 to work out the circumference and volume of a barrel uh, cylinder barrel because he wants to be an engineer oh, you know what I'm saying yeah, he yeah. wants to be an engineer 
well, I actually want to be a mechanic. I said, why don't you be an engineer? Because he's like, I want to be a, a, no, you don't want to be a, a builder. I said, building's great. You can be a builder, but by the time you get to 51, you might be a bit achy. Yeah. So why not get some other skills as well that enable you to become a designer or something, or an architect, so you can go on there as well. And we were chatting with that whilst taking the motorcycle engine apart, and we showed, I showed him how he can use maths to work out the cylinder capacity or the CC yeah. of, of its motorcycle engine. And actually he did, he went back to school and he said to his mum, I want to become an engineer. Amazing. And his, his behaviour kind of went from minus six points to plus 20 within kind of three weeks, just because of that conversation. Yeah. But also at the same time, one of my team was talking to mum, because mum was like, I don't know what to do, I don't know what to do. He's really pain in the arse and we keep fighting physically as well. Mum's going, yeah, but you need to understand where he's coming from. And one of my team's going, come from and actually the the crux of what we do in our project is we we say to the parents and the young person you have the capability mm. you don't have the resources you can if you haven't got the capability right now we believe that you have this you have the ability to develop that capability yeah. to access the resources you need and then we work with West Sussex Parent Care Forum what they do is they guide us to the resources that are already available right across there's a whole wealth of it mm. and quite a quite a few parents have found their own own way through and actually some parents have found their way back from exclusion to help their kids back in because they now understand the legal framework and how it works. And too often I guess you see where the parent is labelled a bad parent where all that work you do about getting that parent on side, getting that, empowering that parent really and in turn empowering the child uh, gets lost. And I asked you earlier, I said, how come the kids do stuff for you? And you said, because they love their mum. Oh boy, yeah, yeah, you don't want to... Uh... Yeah, I mean... I'm, I'm, I'm going by what I know here, okay? Now, I work at an extreme. Um, it's what an alternative pro, uh, provision head teacher told me the other day, he said, Sai. And they've just referred three of their kids to us mm. uh, to extend the project. Um, but it's not the same for everyone. So I'm only explaining my own experiences here. Um, this young girl who was dragged across the floor or whatever, when one of my team, one of the mums, started to understand and help the and share her experience of exclusion and how she got through it, some of those skills with the mum. The mum started to kind of relax because what mum had been doing was trying to get on, she Googled everything. Mm. And actually, same as like a lot of people get a, an illness or something, you know, they think they've got some major illness and actually they've got a, you know, a cold or something because yeah. we Google it. Well, that's actually what we found a number of the parents were doing, particularly the mums. And they were Googling stuff and coming out of all these theories and stuff. And, you know, one of the mums, work within the police force and and she was googling stuff and i said look just stop googling actually just 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 you know stop <laughs> okay and i said to her one time i said she said to me she said my young girl um let's call her jane for now okay that's not her real name um the, the young girl's um name so she said jane um she said to me uh, Mum, we haven't been to that bungalow. We went on holiday for ages. Mm. And she said, and the mum said, well, actually, you know, I'm not sure I wanted to go there with her because she's been so horrible. And I said, well, fair enough. But that to me, in my experience of working with young people, she's saying, Mum, I want some time with you. Yeah. She's not saying... She, the, I know it all comes out with a, with a daughter saying, I hate you, but that's it's a resentment because her mum's the only person she can trust who isn't doing anything to help her and it's making it worse. Yeah. So the kid's kicking off. So actually, I, said, I actually said to the mum, I've said this on two occasions, I said, forgive me if I'm completely wrong here, but what's coming across at this moment is I think you need to just go back to the point of remembering how to love your daughter. Mm. And that was the specific context. I don't want everyone thinking... Yeah. You know, we've got to tell everyone that. That's none of our business. But in that context, at that moment, it, that's what it was. And it's only by knowing those people and developing trust between the parents and the, and the young people, and it works with the whole family, it's a very privileged position to get their trust. Mm. And also being vulnerable in our sense where we're going into the home with no, with, with no power in that sense. Um, and... and, and you know, and then being able to say, she, no, you've just forgotten how to love your daughter. Mm. You're so wrapped up with the fines and all the rest of it. And she did. And she went, she, the next week, she came, she said, she said, um, she said, Simon, I went shopping with Jane the other week and it was absolutely brilliant. We hugged each other. And when I dropped off, it's, when I went, because this girl had actually managed to get back into school. Um, she said, when I dropped Jane from school, she gave me a kiss. 
Oh. And I said, mate, that's amazing. Yeah. I said, you're an amazing mum. Well done for thinking of that and doing that. That was hard to do. Yeah. And that's not patronising. It was wonderful. It was a kind of one of kind of teary moments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that was lovely. And then another time, you know, it happened again. And mum remembered it. Yeah. And, and they went down the beach. She just put everything down. She said, let's go out and get some ice cream and go down the beach. So Stop trying to diagnose her yeah, daughter. Stop yeah, yeah. trying to solve it. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. spent time with her. And it seems like that's, that's a lot of the work you do. I mean, schools spend a lot of time as well, don't they, trying to diagnose, trying to deal with the child. We, we live in a diagnostic society because we want to make everything efficient. Mm. Why? Because we want to make it into a money thing. Mm. We want to, everything's about a market economy. And yes, okay, I understand the economy needs to work. I get that. I'm not kind of anti-money in that sense. Yeah. But I also understand there's a lot more than money. And actually, we're dri in a sense, we're kind of driving, becoming so efficient with our education system in terms of GCSE attainment, we're forgetting the people we're working with the people. Yeah, yeah. And that includes the teachers. In other words, you know, teachers are being treated as though they're just, you know, not even servants of the state. It's like you're just robots having to deliver something. Mm. You know, at what point are we just going to sit a kid down and make them strap them to a chair, put them on headphones and saying, look at the virtual teacher, because we don't need real teachers anymore. Mm. So what is it with those skills that a real teacher has that a virtual teacher hasn't got that we can actually claim, actually, <coughs> this is what makes it work? Mm. I, think, I think there is that relational aspect, I think, that's, that, is, that is being lost. And I think going back to an earlier point when we were talking about schools, what's an ideal school, how do we work with that? Mm. Well, I think the system we've got at the moment will not create an ideal school. But I think we can start to look at it if we start to refocus it, start to look at community transformation. Not just focused on money, though, but actually helping people become the person they want to be. Yeah. And uh, all this experience you've got at the sharp end of exclusions, and, and you're very honest saying, look, I'm dealing with the extreme end here. I guess the final question is, like, how do you view the situation we're in in the schools where children are being excluded? Uh, is it, are too many children getting excluded? Do you think children are getting excluded for the right reasons? Right. Is exclusion itself? Um, right? Yes, too many people are getting excluded. And um, no, it's not always for the right reasons. I think sometimes you haven't got a choice. Mm -hmm. um, when I ran my unit, um, the kids and me and my, my team, we wrote the behaviour rules. Okay together yeah and as unbelievable the kids ended up being stricter on themselves than the kids in school were okay <laughs> i'm like are you sure you can do this but because it was relational right i mean there's um they're buying essentially yeah if you want to put it that way yeah kind of an economic claim there but um <laughs> yeah they trusted me they're saying, oh, but that's the responsibility they were saying sorry you're the educator you've got a set of skills that we we want it's going to, you're promising us that you can help us get a good life. Mm -hmm. And that's what schools essentially claim now. Mm -hmm. And they're saying, in order to help us get there, you're, allowing, you're giving us the freedom to set boundaries. So we'll be really hard on ourselves because we want what you got, but you got to deliver. Yeah. Now it's, and this is a conversation I had with a head teacher recently who came in. He's, he's no longer in a school um, because he was interim. And I've seen it in, in two academies now. Um, <clears throat> where the head teachers come in and said we need to deal with this situation of young people who are not compliant and they're being rude to teachers etc and some of the kids are telling teachers to fuck off blah 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 mm. um, and of course it's not acceptable it, it can't be um, and it's very and you can't teach under those sort of conditions <coughs> but what they ended up doing was excluding 65 odd kids in three weeks three to six weeks so they identified the right problem but not the wrong not the right not solution the right approach yeah. yeah well you know what i said was and i and i used it this is last year um and i i said to the head teacher because uh, he said to me what do you think the kids here i said mate they're lovely hmm. it's on a big sprawling housing estate at school in the middle <coughs> and i think they were trying to impact these the area by changing the building okay. and it just doesn't work yeah. so um and what they said was um, he said, he said, really? He said, I think they're the worst behaved kids I've ever come across in my life. I said, really, where'd you come from? Yeah. I said, have you never worked in a special school? Have you never worked in, you know, what have you worked? And, and he said, well, I've come from so-and-so, so I'm not going to disclose anything in that way. Yeah. But I think the point is, he said, well, I've just excluded 65 young people. I said, what'd you do that for? He said, well, I've got to set the line. I said, okay, fine. I said, my experience of living on housing estates and working with youngsters from 
the sort of background that your school's in, is the parents will go, fine, we'll take the hit. And we, we believe in the system that what you're saying is going to work. But as soon as it doesn't work, after the second or third time my kids got excluded for not having the right colour shoes on or the right top button done up or because he's answered back or because he's asked too many questions of a teacher saying, I don't get what you're on about, so he's raised his voice and they got a day's exclusion and mum's got to come out of her job and she's on hourly paid or whatever, so she loses an hour pay or two hours pay to go and help her kid at home. By the time you get to about a third time, all you're going to do is build up resentment if you don't also address the problem in the classroom. You're placing all the blame on the child and the family and, and other things other than what you're doing in the classroom. Mm-hmm. I said, if your pedagogy, the way you're teaching, could be adjusted and changed, or if you could work with young people in a different way or vary the curriculum so it's more appropriate, and we know that's a, a key issue across schools at the moment and with a lot of young people, then actually that would, that would create a more inclusive environment and the kids might be more motivated to go in. And as well as that, also my youth work background says actually in order to make meaningful change, <clears throat> you need to work with young people to listen to their voice and help them to be part of the processes that enable that to happen. Offer them something if they're going to offer you something, essentially. Yeah, yeah. well, of course, it's reciprocal. Mm. I mean, Gert Biester's work, Paolo Freire's work is all about creating a dialogic space. And what we're doing instead, though, is we're getting this mentality of I'm the teacher... I'm the person in authority, you should respect me, so therefore you're going to call me sir and miss and all the rest of it, and you don't answer me back, but I can answer you back. And there's this kind of distancing, which actually goes against that. Now, I'm not saying you can be best mates with the kids, that's Mm. not what we're after, but I do think there can be some respectful and professional dialogue, and that's what I'm doing with my research at the moment. And we're going to be um, featuring some of Simon's research in the magazine, um, well, hopefully much more in the future but immediately there's some results that we're going to publish about um, the recent study you did so thank you very much for coming on no worries mate